Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have a return guest today, Mr. Ryan Smith. So thanks for being here with us, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jillian. Always good to talk. Ryan Smith attended Transylvania University and graduated with a degree in biochemistry, during which time he had multiple research internships at the University of Kentucky and University of Pennsylvania, and he studied large-scale protein synthesis and physical chemistry. After graduation, he attended medical school at the University of Kentucky for two years, and after finishing all the educational curriculum and passing USMLE Step 1, he decided to leave and help open up a pharmacy in the United States that focuses on peptide synthesis and formulations for pharmaceutical preparations. Since that time, TaylorMade Compounding has become licensed in over 45 states and territories and opened up an additional location in Dubai. TaylorMade Compounding was the first pharmacy to offer an extensive list of peptides in the U.S. and has since become the leader in compounding of peptides and proteins for pharmaceutical use. More recently, TaylorMade Compounding has started to offer the True Age Biological Clock Marker. This is the technology and test we're going to talk about today. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, very, very happy. Happy to talk about True Age. It's a little bit different than our previous talk about a lot of those peptides, but uh, it's yeah. still important. We were talking a little bit kind of about each other, and we've just had 4th mm-hmm. of July weekend. As we were talking about age, we kind of, you were making the distinction between chronological and biological age. Tell us, what is that? And why should we start <laughs> saying, oh, you want to know my chronological age <laughs> my biological age? Yeah, well, you know, I think that it all comes down to, you know, it's a pretty complicated topic because biological age has been around forever. I mean, even since the 50s, really crude metrics, all meant for one thing, is to determine how your body is functioning rather than how old you are chronologically. It And it's really an important thing because, you know, whenever you reference things like HDL or LDL, patients don't have a lot of context for that, right? You know, you don't know what a high LDL is or what a low LDL is. With age, everyone sort of knows, you know, what they can expect out of an 85-year-old versus what they can expect out of a a 19-year-old. I think that, you know, those contexts are pretty well developed. And so this biological age metric has been thrown around for a long, long time. But simply, it's just a a measurement of physical functioning and, and health. Aging. In fact, I was listening to some podcast a few weeks ago, and they were talking about aging as a type of autoimmune activity in the body, because it really is a way in which we cultivate our metabolism and our metabolism matures over time. And there is some loss of integrity of the DNA as we age. And as we'll talk about, there's multiple ways that we can look at that. So there are multiple types of biological clocks, correct? Yeah, definitely. And there, those have been based on a lot of different things. You know, I always like to point out, you know, the eight hallmarks of aging, right? You know, whenever we're having a discussion about aging, there's some really great graphics out there that go over all the eight hallmarks and sort of what to expect. And a lot of those hallmarks are also how people develop these biological clocks. You know, for instance, uh, dysregulated protein synthesis is, or, you know, intracellular communication. These are some of the things that you get as the hallmarks of aging. And these are also things that people have used to develop these types of clocks, you know, uh, looking at the protein levels in the blood to, to see sort of how they correlate with age. I'm looking at the epigenetic modifications, looking at telomere length. Uh, a lot of these clocks sort of uh, have existed based on those hallmarks of aging because those hallmarks are obviously something that people have seen associated with age for a long, long time. So they made really good targets or theoretical targets for this investigation. And when we talk about aging kind of in the conventional medicine, when we're looking at health, even, you know, we're kind of looking at biological aging, even though we don't necessarily call it that. We're looking at things like hemoglobin A1C, which 
is a three-month snapshot of how many glucose molecules have glycated or been stuck onto your hemoglobin molecules. Red blood cells live about 120 days, which is why this is a three-month snapshot. So we can make an estimation of how much sugar or how sugar has been dysregulated in your body by how many glucose are on these hemoglobins. So that's kind of one example. Another would be cholesterol, right? So, mm -hmm. but really the truth is, is that you can have aging in one tissue and not in another. And mm -hmm. that aging can be essentially, I'm putting it in air quotes, like reversible. Why is that? Yeah. So, so you know, I think that, um, you know, aging itself is sort of defined as the progressive loss of function, right? And, and each tissue has a different, you know, so a lot of people might be familiar with people who have, you know, bad kidneys or bad livers. And, and a lot of that can be because of certain type of life events. But also what we're starting to see with some of this new advent of particularly epigenetic testing is that there is something, um, something we don't know yet that we know know that it exists, but we don't know what makes it happen. It's very, very predictable in all tissues and all mammals. Something that happens in a, a very, very regular interval, so much so that predicting age by looking at this metric is very, very reliable. And so all of a sudden now you have a lot of these markers as we talked about are tied to aging and or function. But now we have something that's sort of independent, that's independent of function, but is also sort of highly correlated to age really, really precisely. Um, and so this is why this is so exciting is now all these different things, which are health metrics can be sort of correlated to one independent variable, which associates with age. Tell us what is this variable? It's methylation. <laughs> Epigenetics is is sort of the study of things that happen above the genome, right? Um, epi above uh, and then genetics. So these are things that are happening to your DNA, which change how it works. I mean, you know, I always use the example of a light bulb, right? You can look at a light bulb, you can see how it's made. But if you don't know if it's on or off, really, what's the point, right? And mm -hmm. this is the same with, you know, epigenetics is these methylation. There are a lot of things that can happen in epigenetic fashion. Two of the most common things are methylation and acetylation. Methylation usually happens at the very start of a gene in the promoter region um, at a place called these CPG islands. And whenever you're methylated there, uh, generally, it constitutes a silencing of that gene. And uh, acetylation is the opposite. It usually refers to an activation of that gene. Um, and then you have other things where the DNA can be tightly wound or it can be loosely relaxed. All of these things happen above the genome. So they're in addition to your genomic DNA. This is a, a good thing, though, because, you know, uh, this methylation pattern, like I said, we don't know really what causes it yet, but we know that it's very, very predictable throughout all of life. And that is a really, really cool feature that really hasn't been found in any other tissues in such a reliable, precise manner or any other type of test in such a reliable, precise manner. So the other cool thing about it is that it makes sure that you're not your DNA, right? You have a lot of control over your destiny. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of historical examples of people who are afraid to find out their ApoE4 variants or their, you know, the BCRA mutations, because they're afraid that that is going to predispose them to knowing that they're going to get a certain disease. And now what we're starting to see is that through a lot of these epigenetic modifications, you can actually change your predisposition risk. You know, in particular, this it looks like around 60% of this is changeable. So even the majority is actually changeable. And that's really, really exciting. And so these things all combine to, to be a really exciting metric and measurement, um, which, you know, it has a lot of potential application. Let's go back and kind of do a few definition of terms for some of the things that you said along the way. When we talk about epigenetic, I know many of our listeners will already know what that is, but I want to just kind of review how I talk about this in clinic. I talk about it as the difference between the blueprint and the construction crew. The blueprint is the plans that you have to build the house. So that's our DNA. It's the plans to build the house. And we have that DNA in every single cell. So, you know, in a cell in our kneecap, we have the instructions to build an eyeball. But if we build an eyeball there, things have gone very wrong. So the same way, you know, you don't want to put a toilet in your bedroom. You want to put it in the bathroom. And so there's the blueprint. 
And the blueprint can have a line or two missing here and there. And then we have our construction crew. So our construction crew is kind of the messenger RNA, the micro RNA, essentially what is done with the DNA. So we can have a perfect blueprint and we can have a drunk construction crew and we will likely not have a straight building, or we can have a blueprint that misses a line or two and a super spot on construction crew that goes, oh, we can see that this is, you know, we need to build around this. We need to work around this. Traditionally, when we've looked at DNA tests in the past, like 23andMe or Ancestry or Genetic Genie or MTHFR support, those tests or even genome-wide sequencing whole exome sequencing. So all of these DNA tests tell us the blueprint. Mm -hmm. But the blueprint is, we don't live in the blueprint, we live with what the construction crew has built. And lo and behold, the construction crew, if you build the, you know, it's not like we build the building when we're born, boop, we pop out and we're done. We're remodeling. And actually, that's what it's called in medicine, it's remodeling. You're remodeling all the time. We remodel our bones every day, which is why they talk about osteoporosis, the importance of physical exercise and weight-bearing exercise, because you're remodeling. So you're going to remodel for the strength for which you use. We're remodeling our tissues all the time. And we want to make sure that that construction crew stays sharp to make up for any mutations, variations, errors, or lack in the blueprint. When we are talking about epigenetic function, what we're really talking about is essentially how the construction crew is interpreting the blueprint, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well put. Definitely. Um, and there's a lot of like, different things that the construction crew could do to make that different. And, and methylation is one of those. But unlike a, a lot of those other different terms of interpretation, this is just so reliable and so predictable. And there are 26 million different spots in the DNA wow. where we can be methylated. Um, and that's happening on every different cell and every different tissue. So you can learn a lot about individual tissues. You can learn a lot about the organism all through this measurement. And that's what makes it so exciting is by taking this serum blood or, you know, just the blood that is sort of a snapshot of how the whole body is functioning. Um, you can notice how old you are from a biological standpoint, and it's really, really highly correlated to your actual chronological age, but tells us a little bit more in, in certain different types of areas. To go back to this definition, the methyl group is a carbon and three hydrogens. So it's just this little four atom molecule and it gets stuck places, right? So it gets mm-hmm. stuck just kind of like a magnet on a fridge and it's sticking to cytosine. Is that right? Yeah, it's a cytosine uh, phosphate guanine uh, that's called the CPG site, right? And, and these are mostly, as I mentioned earlier, found in the very, what they call before gene is actually made, it has a, something in front of it called the promoter, right? The thing that recruits all that infrastructure, sort of like, uh, you know, using your construction analogy, it's almost like uh, someone who's hiring all of the construction workers, right? It's, you know, it could be, you know, the contractor or the foreman, uh, someone who's recruiting all of those people to do their job. Um, and so in that particular site, in that promoter site, there are these CPG islands, that is actually what we're measuring for for methylation. And so we're looking to see how many of these four atom methyl groups are stuck onto these promoter regions. And when they stick on, as you were talking about with methylation, they actually silence. So you're not making the eyeball in your knee because that has been silenced. And acetylation means activated. And I, I like your tissue example as well, right? Where, you know, uh, you make different tissues in certain parts of the body based on silencing or activation of certain genes. And that is, you know, on, on a major scale, that's not just about tissue creation, but also expression, right? Whether or not you're making rods or cones in your eye, right? You could even do something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it has a lot of impact on, on everything that happens in terms of a process standpoint from your body. What's the relationship yeah. between methylation and aging? It's a good question because we don't really know. Mm -hmm. All we know is that it's just highly correlated. So we know that it's very, very predictive. In 2013, 
two people came out with these algorithms which predict age based on methylation markers in the blood. That was Dr. Uh, Hannum, Gregory Hannum, and then Dr. Steve Horvath. And Dr. Horvath has continued to do a lot of this research and sort of known as the predominant leader. And by looking at different tissues and their methylation markers, and then correlating that to chronological age, he's been able to sort of train his algorithms or his computational skills to predict age in a very reliable manner. And so we're not really sure what's causing that. We know obviously how methylation happens, but we don't know what's causing that predictable increase in methylation across tissues. And it's not always increase in methylation. Sometimes it's hypomethylation as well, um, which is equally important. You know, whenever we're measuring these things, we're getting a pretty binary value. We're either getting a methylation or a non-methylated, right? A zero Mm -hmm. or one. Um, and, and by sort of summing all of those together and all the different DNA that we're taking, we get what we call a beta value. It's somewhere between a number between zero and one, which expresses how much uh, or how often uh, that particular site is methylated. And that's the kind of beta value is actually what we use in all of those algorithms to really determine how old someone is. What we're talking about is looking at methylation across an array, an array being kind of a series of tests mm-hmm. that you can do with, are all of these done with AI? The algorithms are definitely helped by artificial intelligence um, just to eliminate any type of bad reading and to really get the best markers. You know, when these tests are created, they're looking at thousands of spots. Some of the initial tests looked at, you know, 45,000 spots. Now they've progressed to around 450,000 in some of the new algorithms they've published, like GrimAge. And what they do is they take this look at this big, expansive data set, and then they pick out the ones that are most highly correlated. So out of 450,000, you might have 300 that you finally pick because those 300 spots are the most highly correlated to chronological age. And that's how the algorithm develops is by looking at those relationships, looking to see how they're linked, and then using those links to be predictive measures of what might happen in the future. And whenever those predictive measures turn out to be right, that's a really good sign that your algorithm is working correctly. Um, and, and Dr. Horvath in particular has you know, gone on record to say it's more likely that the Earth gets hit by an asteroid tomorrow and everyone dies than his test is wrong. And that's just a, a scientific <laughs> you know, calculation of odds percentage. But it also goes to say you know, how statistically significant and how precise this measurement is. What I love about this measurement and this look, this kind of, you know, what we're really talking about is what is the set of binoculars that we're taking to like look into the body? So when we stick with our typical clinical markers, we're really looking at pieces, parts. When we look at cholesterol, we're looking at one marker. When we look at blood sugar measurements, when we look at even things like CRP, C-reactive protein, or ESR sedimentation rate, so markers for inflammation that we classically use, even something like a ferritin or an iron level, we're really looking at singular markers and singular tissues for how they're doing. But that doesn't really give us any indication about how that marker plays into the whole picture. And we know that you know, lives to 98, glass of whiskey and one cigar every day at 3 p.m. You know, there's everything is going to figure in differently for cigars yeah. for somebody else is going to kill them at 42. But for this guy kept him alive yeah. till 95. So figuring out how can we not look at individual markers, but mm-hmm. how do we have, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is like Lord of the Rings, like one ring that unites them all. And this yeah. true age test really does seem to reflect a global metabolic binocular view or microscopic view into how the system is functioning. 
Yeah, it's absolutely right. You know, you you have you know, one number to rule them all because what, in addition to this initial calculation was from 2013, where they created, you know, as I, I binoculars is a good one. I always use glasses, right? You know, the, the, <laughs> uh-huh. the, the text in the book is always going to be the same test, but it's how you read those, right? You might have your, your bifocals, you might have, you know, some other types of glasses, all reading a different thing. And right now, the biological age measurement is really, really helpful, not just because it's been correlated to chronological age, but because it's also been correlated to outcome measurements, right? So we know that, for instance, if you have an age that's higher than your chronological age, then you're more at risk for certain types of things. For instance, you know, you have a 16% increase in developing cancer in five years for every year you are older in your biological age and your chronological age. So if you're 38 and you have a biological age of 39, you're 16% more likely to develop some type of cancer in the next five years, which is a a pretty staggering uh, level of significance. You know, the other thing is that it's not just correlated to cancer, it's correlated to BMI, psychological events, a lot of neurological events. There's a lot of interesting things when we talk about the methylation in the brain. But, but that's really where the power is, is because this test is so predictive to negative outcomes. It's the best measurement of both health span, sort of how healthy we are across our lifetime, and then also lifespan in terms of how long we're going to live. And those are the two metrics that you really want to increase. I throw out the statistic a lot. It's from a presentation from another one of the major clock algorithm creators, uh, Morgan Levine, Dr. Morgan Levine from Yale. And uh, she was working with Dr. Horvath and created a really interesting clock. But in one of her presentations, she shows that reducing the epigenetic aging rate by seven years across the entire population would reduce the morbidity in the United States by half. So overnight, half of everyone you know who's sick is no longer sick, wow. right? That's crazy. And and that's exactly what gives, you know, obviously this is cool science. This is really interesting from a subject matter aspect. But, you know, as I think about the individual who who who's a little bit scared of their own health, and wants to change it. This that's why this metric is the one metric, you know, the one ring to rule them all, right? Because yeah. so predictive for outcomes. And 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 if you're really trying to train your body and, and correct your body, there are a lot of ways you can do that. You can attack things like high cholesterol or high inflammation with, you know, ESI or, you know, the C reactive protein. But another good metric is to just attack this, right? Um, because this is probably implicated in a lot of those reasons why we're aging and we're losing function. Um, we haven't been able to draw that conclusive link yet, but because it's so highly correlated, it would make a lot of sense. When we talk about our biological age being different than our chronological age, we're talking specifically with this epigenetic methylation mm-hmm. clock because there are other clocks. So there's telomere testing. Can you talk a little sure. bit about that? Yeah, so telomere testing is one that's that's been exciting for a long, long time because you know a long time ago uh, there was a thing called the Hayflick limit. I'm actually Dr. Hayflick. Uh, I didn't know till recently. Also discovered what senescent cells were. So uh, interesting correlation there. But the idea was that the Hayflick limit. Every time that we telomeres are found on the end of every bit of your DNA, and they're put there um, to essentially so you can lose them because you're losing a little bit of DNA every time you replicate a cell. And as we're going through our life, you know, we have a ton of replicative fence. Um, and therefore, that those telomere links are, are built in to sort of lose on purpose. Um, that's sort of the idea. But what happens is whenever those get critically short, they can cause damage to the cell. And so a lot of people thought, hey, this is the reason we age. This is if we could figure out a way to increase telomere length we can stop aging. And, you know, I think that since that idea, it hasn't proved to be as important as a, of a metric as we once thought, because unlike a lot of the epigenetic calculations, uh, telomere length is still associated with age, 
but it's sometimes negatively correlated with age and it's not predictive of outcomes. A lot of that reason is because telomere length doesn't really matter until they're critically short, until they're they're missing. And then uh, then they can increase, you know, the senescence of the cell where these cells pause and don't replicate any further. So why it's a good metric and, and one of those eight hallmarks of aging, it's probably not as important uh, because it's not as predictive. That's unfortunate, but uh, but telomere length has probably been the major biomarker of aging in sort of the cash pay integrative medical space for quite some time, even though it probably doesn't have the same level of power or predictive capabilities that the epigenetic biological age does. Then there's another class of biological clocks, which are these transcriptonomic predictors, proteonomic predictors, and metallobolomic now we're getting sort of into a really cool area, which is called the multiomics, right? You mm-hmm. start with the genomics, then you have the epigenomics, then you have the transcriptomics, and then you have the proteomics, and then you have the metabolomics. And often a lot of people also include the sort of the GI system and how the microbiome sort of flourishes uh, as well into that. And there you're getting a lot of interesting snapshots of different levels of the body. With the metabolome, you're getting everything from how, you know, a good look at how everything's functioning and metabolizing. Um, In the genome, you're getting obviously that blueprint. And so there are a lot of places Ideally, what you would want is information from all of these different places. The reason being is because then you could say, hey, if everyone is the same and everywhere except here and here, what's the outcome? And then you can really isolate variables to determine how that variable affects health. And so eventually, I think what's going to happen is, is these algorithms and these computer learning systems will have all of these different variables to look at and correlate those with clinical outcomes. And whenever all that happens, we're going to get a lot more information about the impact of each one on each of these different areas. But for right now, you know, the, I think the proteomic clocks are probably the most developed out of all of those three we just mentioned. The proteomics clock looks at proteins and peptides in your body, how they're created, and what the concentrations are to do a very similar correlation between chronological age as methylation. But unfortunately, they're not yet as specific. I mean, that, there's been a couple of review papers out there that show that there's a lot of promise, but uh, it's not nearly as specific. Generally, I think there's only a 2.3% difference in the proteomic features from the time you're age 20 to the time you're age, I think, 75. And so the the change is not very large, whereas if you're looking at that from an epigenetic standpoint, you can get some pretty large changes and then allow you to be a lot more specific in your testing and then in your outcome measurements as well. Going back to the true age test, our methylation test here, tell me again, how many CPG islands are we testing? So our algorithm looks a little bit over 400, and we're probably going to end up improving that and including more places, but we're testing over 900,000 spots in the DNA. And this allows us to not just read out this measurement for you. For instance, everyone wants another biological age, and this is a great way to start. But in the future, this test is, this methylation markers are going to be highly correlated to a lot of other outcomes as well. For instance, development of Alzheimer's. Um, We already currently have a telomere estimator predictor, which is more highly linked to outcome measurements than just regular telomere testing and more specific as well. So you have telomere length. You even have death prediction, right? I mentioned grim age earlier, which is another one of Dr. Horvath's algorithms, which can even predict maybe the the day that someone might pass away. So you can get all of these different tests and and, and more and more will be created. What's happening now, even in Dr. Horvath's grim age, he used um, blood assay protein markers to correlate back to other markers in the test. And so you even have uh, epigenetics now that can be predictive of, of markers in the blood. It'll probably never replace that, but 
what you can do is you can sort of train these epigenetic markers to, to give you readouts on a lot of other things, metabolomics, proteomics, all of these other things we mentioned can be sort of trained uh, to be predictive through the methylation markers. And so by looking at such a large variation, even though we're not using even a fraction really of that for our test, this amount of data allows us to create more tests, which are more valuable for the patient and more valuable for their physicians. There's an article that I was looking at off your website that was talking about predictability cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. So we have multiple types of testing for cervical cancer. One is the traditional pap test, the pap smear. So you're looking at the actual cells for changes. Backing up, we've been able to look at HPV testing. So we know that if there's HPV, human papillomavirus present, that there's a much greater risk. And then there was an article about methylation testing, that if we are looking at a certain array, that there's actually much greater predictability than either looking at the cells themselves or looking at the presence of HPV. Yeah, it's crazy because usually, you know, you think about cancer risk, you think about a biopsy, right? You think about looking at the cells and seeing if they're abnormal. But what's happened, you know, in addition to this epigenetic measurements for biological age, there's a huge fraction of people uh, who are looking into methylation markers for something called liquid biopsy. So these are where they take the same blood that we would take to do your biological age calculation, but they're looking for just a few fragments of DNA. They can find stage zero cancers, you know, oncoblot or IV gene or some examples Mm -hmm. of this, but there's more and more coming out. This is huge area of development where they can take your blood and, and look preventatively before you even have a cancer. If you, for instance, have an increased risk, you can do this preventatively twice a year. And what it can do is detect stage zero cancers so you can get ahead of it early. And so the methylation in order to look in the blood for really, really precise, and that shows you how precise it is. You know, it's so precise that you can't even get it through diagnostic imaging. You can't do it through biopsy uh, because you don't know where to look, right? This, so what they do, and they're able to find just a few DNA segments from a few different cells and be able to pick up with a high degree of certainty that you have a cancerous mutation. And that's really, really exciting because it changes the way that we think about cancer in terms of you don't have to wait for symptoms to develop. You can do it and and take a preventative approach to this, which is the exact same thing that why this is so exciting from a, a personalized medicine standpoint as well is because if you're looking at our, you know, true age test, for instance, you can use it to evaluate not only the patient's individual response to medications, but also in large cohorts, you can really see how a different type of intervention is affecting a patient population before they have to sort of age out of it, right? You don't have to wait 50 years to find out when they're going to pass away or when they're going to develop symptoms or when they're going to develop a disease. What you can really do is look at how this metric is happening and being changed in real time. And so that's the beauty of it is you're getting a metric which is more correlated to outcomes than anything else. You're getting it in real time and you're getting it on a patient-specific basis, which makes this sort of, I think, in the future, an indispensable test for anyone who's taking care of themselves in a preventative manner. We've thought about this for a long time because the Ayurvedic definition of prevention is that the disease never develops. Mm -hmm. But if you are doing preventative testing with routine colonoscopies, with routine cervical cancer, pap testing, screenings, those things you're actually looking for, those are actually early detection. Those are not prevention. You're preventing a worsening of the disease, but the process has already been set in motion. And one Mm -hmm. thing we know about our systems is that we are creating cancer cells all the time. Whoops, there goes the DNA, it divides a little wrong, it's got some wrong instructions, and our body generally will take care of it. But what I'm hearing you say is that if this test calculates that your trajectory and speed are going to driving off the cliff, that we don't have to wait till your front bumper and your wheels are off the edge before we say, oh, we see the nose sticking out, you know, now let's take care of it. You can actually make that turn. Again, it's about correlation to outcomes and this being so tightly correlated 
allows you to see where your trajectory is, right? You get to see where you're going in a way that is more indicative of it than, you know, body fat percentage, that's more indicative of it than your A1C levels. It's actually really cool. Uh, I actually have been told that there's in the next couple of weeks, a uh, epigenetic methylation marker that's more specific for diabetes risk than A1C levels, which we talked about earlier, and fasting insulin combined. Um, And so that just gives you, again, like I said, it changes your clinical perspective. Um, because, you know, some people might look very metabolically healthy. They might have be relatively thin, um, but have really bad A1C levels or fasting insulin. Um, and if you can predict that in a way that's even better, you can start intervention earlier. You can change your diet. You can do all these other things that, that you need to do because you know you need to do them. And that's the beauty. <laughs> Now that we've talked about how great this thing is, this True Age <laughs> test, and yeah. the company's called True Diagnostic, walk us through this test. Sure, and that's TRU Diagnostic for anyone who's Googling at home. Um, but uh, but I should mention, yeah, this test is really, really easy to do. Um, essentially, uh, you can contract with your physician or buy directly from our website and have a sh- test kit shipped directly to you. All it is is a, a quick Lancet fingerprint prick like you would do if you were diabetic and trying to take your A1C levels. And so you take that blood, you drip it into a container and you send it back to us. Usually within two to three weeks, we'll send you back um, and send your physician a report. We have a, both an abbreviated report and a really, really long report. And we use some of some survey uh, measurements uh, to really report out on a lot of different things. Um, one thing I should note is that to date, there's only one study that's been published showing an intervention which changes epigenetic age. And that's the TRIM trial by Dr. Fahey, um, which showed that growth hormone metformin and DHEA could reduce your epigenetic aging rate by around 2.5 years. And that's really, really exciting because as I mentioned, that's a very, very big difference to that seven-year goal, which was seven-year goal, which we were talking about earlier. That's the only interventional trial which has been done. Um, however, there's been a lot of epidemiological trials, which we definitely report on in this report. We talk about um, the influence of diet and how that generally affects epigenetic age in large populations. We talk about inflammatory burden. We talk about childhood development, things like stress or PTSD or low financial status or, or low education. How does that affect sort of where you're trending? We talk about obviously cancer risk. We talk about longevity. We talk about some of these other trials which are going on. So this big report, this 70 page report goes over really all of the literature at the moment, which links this measurement to different types of diseases or any type of correlation between predictive values. But there's only been one interventional trial been done, and we're trying to change that. I mean, trying to do a lot of studies on all these other metrics we think could affect biological age. But really, you know, the main measurement which happens in this report, the one thing everyone needs to know about is how old are you? And what is the difference between your chronological age and then the biological age readout we're giving? And what we would always love to see is that it's lower. We want to see a lower, essentially, we want to see a lower biological age than the chronological age. Um, but more than that, so if you were to divide, you know, your, your chronolo- biological age by your chronological age, we'd want to see a number that's less than one, uh, right? And then we call that sort of that epi age ratio. We want to see it less than one. If it's less than one, you're trending the right direction. Uh, if it's above one, there might be some things you can do to change that and to slow your aging so that you're a healthier individual. The, the longer you live. One of the things that we've been talking about is that this test can be really useful if you're embarking on any kind of health changes to see how things are changing. So this could be something that a person does yearly, like as their birthday gift to themselves to figure out kind of where they're at and and mark their progress. The other thing that we talk about, especially from the Ayurvedic perspective is, you know, we want life to be comfortable. So we're not trying to get people to live to 200. We're just trying to get people to live. Well, my goal, what I tell patients in clinic is we're trying to get you to live to 100 and then you can drop dead at the way place and time of your choosing. So we want people to have this extended good healthy life, but we don't want people to necessarily avoid 
you know, every donut or every, I mean, donuts are. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And, and, you know, I think that that's, that's one of the other good points as well is that everyone says, do I want to live to be 120? Right. You know, uh, yeah. and a lot of people think no, because they've seen people age and they've seen how difficult that can be on some people, the loss of function, the loss of autonomy, you know, all these different things. But the good news about our, this metric biological age is that health span and lifespan are correlated, right? Mm-hmm. So how healthy you are, and, and how long you live are sort of the same thing, right? If we're targeting how healthy you're going to be living, we can affect both of those metrics and make sure that you're living uh, a higher quality of life for a longer period of time. How vigilant do you need to be with your diet and lifestyle and exercise? Do you need to be, you know, can you be sleeping in? Do you need to be getting up and exercising? These are things that we can then change based on the results of this test. How hard do you need to push on your health versus other things in your life? This science is brand new. You know, I like to tell people that as well, because I said only one interventional trial has been done, but but sooner we're going to be able to find out, hey, you know, those people who work out in the morning have, you know, X, Y, Z effect on their epigenetic age versus people who work out at night, right? We're going to get all of these really cool tips and tricks, which correlate to this metric. And by sort of consolidating all those into a really effective treatment plan and on an individualized treatment plan, right? Because we can show how it affects uh, individual. We are able to sort of shift their lifestyle into a direction that's healthier um, and precise, I think, that and so that they're living better, healthier lives with really specific uh, recommendations. There's one thing that I would love to yeah. bring up, and that is in the future, we're going to have a breakdown in this test, which is going to be really, really helpful as well, that separates intrinsic versus extrinsic epigenetic age. This is a sort of a, a little bit of a complicated subject, uh, but the way to really think about it is the extrinsic epigenetic age is often tied to the amount of sort of the functioning of your immune system. And because we're taking these, we're taking blood from you know your venous system, this is going to include a lot of immune cells. This is going to include T cells, you know, senescent T cells, naive T cells, B cells, plasma B cells, um, and all all these things, the, the I should say, the proportions and ratios of those things change with we, as we age. As we get older, we have we go through immunosenescence, which decreases our thymus, um, increases our amount of uh, senescent T cells, decreases our naive T cells, and this makes us more susceptible to disease. It's why people who you know are older are more likely to get the flu or to have complications with the flu. Same with COVID nineteen and coronavirus. Um, and so we also know that extrinsic epigenetic age is going to be more highly correlated to certain types of outcomes, whereas in intrinsic epigenetic age, it sort of factors all of those changes in to make a very, very predictable age prediction across any type of age or any type of disease condition. And so those two things are very, very different, but uh, all rolled up into this one idea of biological age or epigenetic biological age. And so uh, soon we'll be able to even treat a lot of immune cell, immune constituent issues with this metric as well, and make sure that they're aging in a way that uh, can, you know, help clear those, those cancer burdens the moment they come up, right? Or help uh, handle uh, you know, viral burdens like like the coronavirus or the things we're exposed to on a daily basis. Um, and so that's sort of another future state, which hopefully will happen here in the next couple of weeks. One of the things that what you're talking about is memory. So the idea that the immune system can learn, can be intelligent and can learn and then can record how to function and what to attack and what to not attack, what to get rid of, what not to get rid of in the body so that we've got a nice balance of mm-hmm. immune system and autoimmune you know, low autoimmune, low cancer, methylation in memory, like the idea that when we learn to type on a computer, we don't look for, you know, every time we want to type a G, I don't look for where the G is, I remember it. And so do we think that methylation over time has something to do with memory, that there's ways that 
our bodies yeah. to be more efficient and responsive to our environment through methylation? Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, we're not sure about all the ways in which this happens, but one of the yeah. best examples of this is whenever you're born, the instinctual things you're born with, how do bottlenose dolphins know how to swim, how do honeybees know, uh, all the things that they know, right? And the answer yeah. is that it's the same as, you know, the way that your cells are programmed to express your eye cells versus your skin cells, right? It's the exact same thing. You're, you have epigenetic predispositions that are actually passed down from generation to generation. And that is why you have those instinctual behaviors uh, programmed in is because of epigenetic modifications. So we know that, you know, as we talk about immune memory, right, uh, we know that there's probably some correlation, but we, we definitely know that there's uh, some type of intergenerational heritability of methylation features, which confers a benefit to the offspring or in sometimes a detriment. You know, mothers who have children at an older age or same with fathers are unfortunately more likely to have complications. Um, you know, we, we see that and we know that it's via an epigenetic platform. And, and so we know that there, there's some good things and not so good things that are transferred via methylation, but it's still an interesting topic nonetheless. Well, this has been so fabulous. And this true age test we are currently offering in our clinic, you can also get it online. We offer it here at the Center for Healing Neurology. And again, I want to thank our guest, Mr. Ryan Smith. Thank you. As always, the conversation is always fascinating, always so interesting. And we're really excited to see what happens with the True Age test and this company, True Diagnostic, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Jillian. Look forward to coming back and uh, maybe we'll talk about some specific neurological uh, epigenetic modifications. Oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening today with Ryan Smith. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also get more information from and about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com and about True Diagnostic from trudiagnostic.com if you're looking for the True Age Test. Please feel free to send us topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com and we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.